Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. The Worcester County District Attorney says the evidence collected in the Molly Bish murder case will be submitted for enhanced DNA testing. Next Monday, it will be 16 years since Molly Bish disappeared from Commons Pond in Warren back in 2000. The 16-year-old had been a lifeguard at the pond when she disappeared on June 27th. Her remains were found in a wooded area in Palmer nearly three years later. The upgraded tests will become available in September, and the improvement in testing could make degraded samples usable for determining DNA. Right now, a new search is underway in the Molly Bish case. Nearly 17 years ago, the teen disappeared from her job as a lifeguard. Her remains were found three years later. Today, investigators are using ground-penetrating radar to search a campground a few miles away from where Bish was last seen. They believe a car possibly connected to the case may be buried there. No one has ever been charged in connection with Molly Bish's death. case is about to get more national attention. A special on her abduction and murder is scheduled to air tonight on cable. Bish was last seen in June of 2000 when her mother dropped her off at her lifeguard job at a pond in the town of Warren, Massachusetts. Her remains were found three years later. The case remains unsolved. Her family hopes the special will generate new leads. Before we get started this week, I just wanted to let you guys know that this conversation was meant to be just a one-parter, but as things go with Nick, we of course talked for longer than that, and uh, we are going to split this into two episodes. The joy is we actually talk about two different cases, so this week we will be talking about Molly Bish, and then next week we will be talking about the case of Honey and Barry Sherman. And this is a brand new episode with Nick from True Crime Garage. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 192 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Killer Podcast, and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, I am once again joined by everybody's favorite guest. And who do you think that is? It's Nick from True Crime Garage. How are we doing today, Nick? Great. Thank you for the nice introduction, and it's wonderful to be here chatting true crime again, once again here with you, Bill. Normally we do this over a couple of cups of coffee in the a.m. hours. Today we're doing it later in the day, so much brighter out there, a little a little hot here in Ohio. I don't know how hot it is out there, but uh, uh, we got a little heat index today. Let's say uh, I'm feeling I'm feeling what the rest of the country is feeling. Denver is. Let me look at the temperature. I believe we are sitting at 90, but oh, we're actually at 80, 88. So not bad, but it is a lot less humid in Denver than it is in Ohio. So I'm assuming it's probably uh, pretty rough down there. My AC has been running nonstop for several <laughs> hours now. But, uh, hey, uh, funny that uh, we're connecting here today because found myself in a conversation probably a few weeks ago. Your name came up. I was talking with uh, Kelly, who I think was a guest on your show at oh, some yes. point. Is that right? Or you yes. were a guest on yep. her show? And was I was talking with the show. captain, and uh, both of them had a lot of great things to say about you. So, um yeah, there's people out there talking about about Bill, talking about who killed, and now here I am 
talking to you and talking on the show. Well, thanks again, Nick, for always touting my uh, less than stellar, you know, resume. But anyway, <laughs> it's all great. I don't have 600 episodes under my belt like this kid's going to have. And, uh, or do you already have it? We, we have surpassed 600. You're so 600. Oh, so I'm now in the 600 goodness. club. Uh, I don't know if you knew that that's a oh, man. elite group. That's probably an elite group. That's probably an elite group. And uh, that's pretty impressive because that's what? Did you always do two shows a week? Uh, n- not always. And then even once we went to two, we don't always stick to that. And then sometimes we'll do three or four. So we've kind of cheated a little bit. You know, a lot of a lot of people do the one a week. Um, we decided that, uh, you know what, we're going to work twice as hard as everybody else out there. <laughs> so uh, we, I don't we got to you. 600 maybe a little faster than, than some of the other people out there. We're, we're almost well, like one of these sports shows, you know, that do – do two or three or four episodes a week. Yeah, you're crazy. And uh, that's nuts because you guys have really a great show and to be able to produce quality content like that on a consistent basis is very difficult. And uh, just commend yourselves for being able to do it because I know that when I see you guys out and about, you are hands down the biggest draw and uh, people definitely want to talk your ears off about whatever crime it is that caught their fancy. And uh, on this week's show, we are just going to talk about a couple cases that have been interesting to us that we've kind of covered over the past few years. And Mm -hmm. I did a specific episode on one uh, Molly Bish, and I am efforting to get Heather, which is Molly's sister, uh, as a guest on Who Killed. She is we have been in touch via email, so hoping to have her on as well. But as far as the case goes you know molly was i mean she was a gosh it was 2001 and it was in the middle of summer she was working as a lifeguard and if you don't know the story she was living in warren massachusetts which is like this small town in Mm -hmm. you know the east coast and her mom dropped her off at her lifeguarding job at cummings pond And this was, again, on June 27th, 2000. And I think I may have said 2001 earlier, so apologies for that. You're fine. You're fine. (laughs) But anyway. June 27th, 2000. Yeah. So one of the things that happened the day before, she had noticed an interesting character, uh, I don't know, kind of lurking around the pool or pond area. And I don't know, kind of was something that she took note of. But the day that she dropped her off, nothing seemed to miss until her mom actually received a phone call saying that Molly had not actually shown up to work, even though she had been dropped off. Mm-hmm. So this was, you know, kind of shocking to the whole area, especially since it was so small. And, you know, Maggie's mom drove to the p- pond, very much like Margaret Mahalovic driving to the school looking for Amy. And, of course, you know, She's not there, but all her stuff is there. So, I mean, could you just imagine being this mother who just dropped her daughter off at work and then she's gone? And then you see that phone call. And from my understanding, too, there's uh, several odd things about this case. The first being, you know, they're reported that she never showed up to work. Well, yeah, she did. We dropped her off at work. It just so happened she was the first one there. 
And so whatever went down, whatever took place that day happened before anybody else got there. And now we're sitting here, well, over 21 years later now. And the case to me, from what I can see, it looks to me like there's still, it's an incredibly active case for being 21 years old. Yes. There has been some news in the case and it is, it is very active. I think it's one of those cases very similar to, uh, you know, the cases that's, I don't know, take over a, a small town because, you know, you can't forget about that kind of stuff. And if you live in a small community, then as the expression goes, someone probably knows something. And I think that they've just been striving to get the answers. And then, of course, with the DNA technology that's been improving every year, we see cases solved every other week or every day, for that matter, that are, uh, you know, just getting tested. And there's a backlog in testing. And, you know, the one thing about Molly is that, uh, you know, they did have some DNA to test. So they had hopes that they were going to be able to find this particular suspect via the DNA. Uh, now with the technology where it is, this particular test did not come back as a match. So uh, that's the current news, but that is basically jumping way ahead of the story because of the fact that, you know, when Molly did go missing, um, you know, it was like a whole town thing, you know, the, everybody searched, mm -hmm. uh, there was a big search party, you know, the family tried to search for her on their own, which you hear all the time because, you know, you don't think the nefarious thing right away. I mean, you may think that way if you work in true crime, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she wanted to look and do what she could. And then she finally called the police and then the state police. And finally there was a big search party, but they didn't find anything. They put out dive team boats and, you know, they searched the pond and searched the woods. And I mean, they had all the different law enforcement units out and nothing missing flyers. And you think about like this area, I mean, it's pretty rural. So they're looking in these woods and, I mean, this is also like the land of Sasquatch sightings and stuff like that. You know, it's so dense, meaning that anything can be hiding and basically in plain sight. So mm -hmm. there could have just been something missed that day. Do you think in Molly's case that somebody had been stalking her? Well, I think the the very troubling thing is is what we you pointed out at the top of the show, right? When mom drops her off the day before, she notices something that catches her eye, and I'm a big believer in intuition, especially that of a mother's intuition. And for whatever reason, she took notice of that man the day before. And I I don't know if I would call it stalking, but uh, the, if if in fact that man that she saw the day before is the one responsible or somebody that was involved in the abduction and later the death of Molly Bish, then yes, it, it's it it looks to me almost like somebody casing the joint. Um, and these swimming I, pools too are have been notoriously. A, a hot spot for pedophiles for well remember this is a pond so it's sort of right. like you know it's it's 
yeah, it has that ability, but it has that creepy and eeriness of being able to just kind of disappear into the woods. Like, okay, here's right. this like road that goes up to this little beach and this little pond. And yeah, but it was a pond that was almost treated as like a community pool. Absolutely. I mean, they right. had, exactly. I mean, it was, you know, it, yeah, it was treated like an outdoor pool, basically. And, and I had think lifeguards. That- I think that most of your listeners will identify more with the community pool idea. And so that's kind of where my mind goes, where you think of these uh, community pools that are frequented by youngsters, Mm -hmm. often run and managed by youngsters as well. And so this would be if somebody was looking to snatch a a teenager, boy or girl, this would be uh, uh, an ideal location for that, unfortunately. And unfortunately, if the day prior, if those, if the events of the day prior were a repeat of the day that she was abducted, well, then he, he very likely may have seen her there by herself, nobody else there on scene and saw an opportunity, right? This, this could be, this could be somebody that was looking for an opportunity and found it and came back the next day hoping that the prior day's events would repeat. Yeah. And so like we were talking about the guy that the mom had seen before Maggie, and that was, he was a guy, a man sitting in a white car and she said that he was there for about 20 minutes. So that would creep you out for sure. If you're a mother and kind of there sitting, smoking cigarettes. I mean, like I get it. Like, you know, I take my dog to the park and, you know, there'll be a car in the parking lot and yeah, you probably look at it and maybe think that maybe something nefarious is going on, but nothing, you know, you don't really think something's going on, but in this particular situation, I mean, it's clear that it was odd enough that her mom mentioned it and Mm -hmm. remembered it. And this guy was apparently between the age of 45 and 55 and had dark hair and it was kind of salt and pepper and you know that cl- like that classic look had a mustache and uh apparently there were other uh sightings of white car but you know it's a white car you know the most common vehicle it's like a white van good luck you know finding that so it's uh it's kind of s- scary to think that this guy could have been sitting there waiting for or waiting for to see her mom pull away and then pull up and be be like, hey, what's going on? And then, you know, what what happens, happens. But the fact that people did show up at the pond and then never saw this vehicle makes you wonder if, like, he basically, you know, transported her in his vehicle then. Well, and the thing here, too, is, look, we've not covered this case on True Crime Garage. I know you've covered it. Uh, more than once, I believe, on on who killed. But um, so I might get into some questions that you may not know the answers to, but I'll throw them out anyway. So from my understanding, mom and dad were once leading the charge on keeping Molly's case alive and in the media. And I mm-hmm. know that, that since then, at some point, her sister, Heather, has taken that over Heather Bish has taken over yes. the, leading the charge is, is mom and dad still around is mom, you still know, with us? um, that is a good question. 
Uh, knowing the time frame, I do not want to say without check double checking. So okay. I'm just double checking and uh, basically. So the reason why I'm asking kind of that 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 question that that um, is is where my mind goes. So the the first thing that I would be thinking, right? We know we get this description of this man that's seen the day before from mom. And so the first question after I get the, the complete description and rundown of this person from her, mm -hmm. the first question I'm asking mom is if you see this person or a picture of this person, would you be able to say, yes, that's him? Right. Because when we know that when she saw this man the day before, yeah, he might have been hanging around. He was lingering. He was there a little too long. But how good of a look did you get? How strong do you feel about your recollection of the, this man and what he looks like? And so that's my first question that I always ask these witnesses or here we have what I would refer to as a potential witness because we do not know who that man was if he even had any involvement at all. Um, sure. There is one interesting aspect, though, to to the man that's spotted in the white car. We don't ever have anybody coming forward to police. As you pointed out, this is a very big case early on in this area. It was the uh, biggest search in a huge uh, case in this area. Ma it was the biggest search in Massachusetts history at that point in time. And that was uh, that's insane because that was 2000. And so we don't have anybody coming forward saying, yeah, I was over at, uh, what was it, Cummins Pond mm -hmm. uh, the the day before. I was at Cummins Pond the, the day before, and I was the guy in the white car. I was there because I was dropping somebody off myself, or I was picking somebody up, or I was meeting I was taking somebody a break for, from work. <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason. We don't, we don't have that person. So it stands to reason that if that person was local, or even somewhat local, they would have heard of this news. And likely if they were a good person, a good citizen, they would come forward and offer up what information they have. And their information that they have that is very valuable to this case, the main key part would be, I am he. He is I, and I did not have anything to do with this case. Uh, you sure. need to move on from the white car. You need to move on from the this the, the smoking mustache man yeah yeah because i mean that's really what they based a lot of it on and it, and we see that in a lot of other cases too and when you think about the white car you know i talked about you know it being very abundant as far as like just being a very popular car color uh other people had seen the car and it was in the area so you know it's interesting to think that people did see this individual Again, he could have been taking a break from work, could have had nothing to do with it. But if he had nothing to do with it, you would think that he might make an effort to come forward to say, hey, you know what? I shouldn't be the guy that you're still continuing to waste all your time pursuing because, mm -hmm. you know, there's other people out there. And he never did that. Well, and the other the other very troubling thing, too, is that Molly's case is not the only one. You know, there's another case out there that is somewhat similar to this in the same area from years prior. And um, you you wonder, could there be some kind of connection here? Are we talking about the Holly Peranian case? Yeah. 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 There's always been a weird connection to that case. And uh, 
uh, it does make you wonder um, what the connection, if there is a connection. Uh, you, you do, yeah, you know, you have to, if you're the police, you have to follow up on all these different leads. You know, they, they were able to discover 125 different white cars that had been registered or, or around in the area. But, of course, they never identified this guy. You know, and then they have all these leads and they put them into a database. And it's just like there's sometimes too much information. I mean, I know back when uh, Jacob Wetterling's case was going on, you know, they talk about how there were just so many leads that the lead that came in that was actually about the guy that did it just slipped through the cracks. I mean, mm -hmm. they go, they did go and look at the car, but they didn't do enough to follow up on it because they had so many other things to look into. And I think the case like this is another example of somebody where the girl is blonde hair, blue eyes, disappears from a, a pool. It's very, you know, classic, uh, like horror story that you would tell somebody to watch themselves with when they go to work, you know, make sure you check behind your back before you whatever, get out of your mom's car or this, that, and the other. But it's one of those things that, um, to me, the reason why it's still so active that you mentioned is because there's just a lot of people that still are cheering her on. And that's Heather's, you know, Heather is really the, the main cheerleader and that's how these cases get solved is mm -hmm. you know the john walsh method well and the thing too that i like with uh, heather and i i hope that she takes you up on your offer to come on your show because she knows the case better than anybody she, she, you're exactly right she knows the case far better than anybody out there um and with the recent news in the case, I've been reviewing some of her interviews or, or at least interaction that she's had with, with local media since that news came out. And I encourage people to look at those articles and read them for themselves because she's extremely candid in these articles where she is expressing hope and frustration about the actual investigation and the way that the police are handling the case currently. Um, and she has been clear in the past of saying that she has tasked herself with leading the charge and she says she's okay with it, but I feel like that's a, a, a bit of a compromise where she feels like she has to be okay with it because she has to be her sister's champion and, and keep the case going. Now, again, I, I do, I should circle back to what I said earlier, and I still feel this even, even with all of the, um, uh, with all the information and reviewing Heather's recent comments about the case. I, I do think this is a very active case and I, I I'm not going to sit here and pretend to have a clear understanding or, or, or approval rating of how they're handling the investigation, because I don't know everything that they're doing, obviously, but mm -hmm. I am, I feel confident in seeing the activity surrounding the case and, and knowing that they are actively working it as such. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely a case that um, I think is garnering more attention because of the case that you brought up earlier, and that was the Holly Peranian case. Now, that happened seven years prior, but it was in a similar area. Yeah. And, you know, again, Molly was eventually found uh, three years after. Three years after she went disappear- had disappeared, uh, mm-hmm. they found some of her clothing and then eventually found her body. But in Holly's case, uh, she went for a walk and never came home. And, of course, she was found 10 weeks later in the woods nearby and, of course, by local hunters because hunters always find either dead bodies or mannequins. (laughs) Never mannequins, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, it's interesting to think that these two cases could be connected, but... I'd rather say that the focus should be on getting the, you know, the right person for uh, Molly's uh, killer. Because, I mean, they did do this DNA test that we were talking about. And the guy that they had thought was this white car man guy smoking cigarettes and salt and pepper hair and, you know, looking very 80s in his 2000 car and yada 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 and they did some dna because they found a guy that looked very similar to him and he had passed away but he had a son and he was actually in ohio in prison Mm -hmm. so what they did was they went and they tested this or they got the dna of this son and tested it to the dna that they had now unfortunately it wasn't a match and there was so much hope at this point, when they went to test this one individual, that this was the guy because he looked so much like that composite sketch. So it's kind of one of those double-edged swords where sometimes he looks just like the sketch, and then there's other times he looks nothing like the sketch. And Right. And, and I, just to kind of – I don't mean to cut you off there, but to overlay my own thoughts on that. I feel like when I'm seeing the older pictures of this individual, Francis Sumner Sr. is the guy that we're talking about. When I, or Frank Sumner, if, you know, to... He went by Frank, yeah. Yep. So Frank Sumner, when I see pictures of him, the older pictures of him, I think looks... I think you're both, you're you're totally right. Because the earlier pictures look a lot like smoking Mm -hmm. mustache man. And then the (laughs) the later pictures... uh, from him later in life, yeah, he doesn't look anything like uh, smoking mustache man. In no. fact, he, he looks like he's he had lost some weight. He he didn't age very well, which I'm I'm very happy that that happened to Frank Sumner. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy because not only does he at one point in his life look like smoking mustache man, but he has a horrible criminal history, and this is a violent sexual predator. Uh, or at least he was at at one period in his life. Doesn't and, matter if you were you, at one point in your life, you're a sexual predator. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Well, what, as we both know, for some that never changes, and right. and for Absolutely. for for probably the very few, it does. But um, and there's a multitude of reasons why that and how that can happen. But in this case with Sumner, he. And I don't have all the details 
and frankly, I didn't want to dive too deep into all the details because of pretty gruesome stuff here. But from mm-hmm. what I understand was he was working at an at a uh, mechanic shop, an auto mechanic shop. Uh, I don't know if he owned the shop or if he just worked there, but there was a an individual a customer that uh, came in, brought their vehicle in there, and somehow he either lured her somewhere or he followed her back to her apartment. I'm a little unclear of those details, but the short of it is he attacks her in a violent rape and he gets caught for it. And he ends up doing a decent amount of time. This was for, it was a kidnapping and aggravated rape charges that stem from this 1980 crime. And after a trial in 1982, he's sentenced to like 15 to 18 years. And he ends up getting out. It, it looks like he served about 15 or 16 years of that sentence. And we know that he's out in 1998. And Molly Bish, she is abducted and then killed in 2000. So he would have been out at that time and again not living terribly far from where this the whole molly bish thing happened no i mean he fit the profile as far as what people were looking for again when they're looking at the sketch people get very very you know dialed in on that type of thing and i think that happens in a lot of cases so you know sketches are great but they sometimes can be also misleading and deceptive. And, and, you know, I know that's the same thing, but it's still very uh, something to keep aware of when you do uh, sort of look into a case and you start looking at pictures and say, oh, well, that that person definitely looks like the composite sketch. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that look like composite sketches because they're just taking a bunch of composites and piecing them together and making a sketch. There's a reason. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, that investigators lay out in part of their reasoning for um, having an interest in uh, this this individual is that, um, you know, this this horrible crime that that he we know he's guilty of. There's no question of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm the the auto repair people. The if you have a, a. a violent individual or a predator that works in that industry. It's always extra scary to me because they do have access to different vehicles at the quick. And we know that vehicles typically can be easier to identify and locate than an actual person. And so Mm -hmm. was, was he, did he have access to somebody else's car that day? Uh, was he was he using driving one that was he was supposed to be working on that was dropped off for a week or whatever, and now he can return it back to somebody and, and have no, uh, you know, have an extra step there that maybe they find this vehicle on somebody else. You know, that's that's something to take concern of. But in the end, what we end up learning quite recently is that the DNA comes back and it's not a match to this Frank Sumner senior. Mm-hmm. And what, what's really interesting and weird to me though, too, is he remains a person of interest from the, from the information I found per the investigators, even though the DNA does not match, 
They're not saying this clears him. In fact, they're saying quite the opposite of saying, well, he still remains a, a person of interest in the Molly Bish case, That's which is very intriguing. Also incredibly aggravating. I'm sure for Holly Bish, who, who is again, been very Heather. candid. In, oh, I'm sorry. Heather Bish, her sister has been very candid and expressed her uh, discontent with the the investigation and i think a lot of that comes to and i'm reading between the lines here so i don't want to i don't want anybody to hear what i'm not saying uh heather has not stated this stuff that i'm i'm about to throw in my opinion of but i think what heather's aggravation is right now is look it's peaks and valleys with these investigations and with these cases and this has gone on for 22 years now and there's been times where she's had her hopes up and there's been times when she's been down in the dumps incredibly over this case and she's hoping for answers she's wondering if they're ever going to come and after you have let down after let down after let down you start to become beaten down and you start to think this thing is never going to be over this thing is never going to be resolved there will never be justice for molly that's aggravating that's sad it's heartbreaking and it's also probably in a way mind-numbing to to heather and to any of the other bish family members but yeah i i I think i think the a big problem that she's currently having is i think she feels like there's a, a lack of possibly due a lack of due communication to her and the Bish family. I think they're sitting there going, okay, we've done everything that you've asked us to do for two decades. And now we know that you are doing this. You're testing this stuff. You're, you're, you're calling this person a a person of interest. And now the tests come back. It doesn't match up to him. He's still a person of interest. What's going on? Give us something. Give us something because peaks and valleys, we're in a really bad valley right now, man. Give us something. Give us something yeah. to hang our hat on and something, something, some kind of hope, some kind of light at the end of the tunnel here because it's dark right now. Yeah, I mean, she she told NBC 10 Boston that, uh, you know, basically, you know, we talked earlier about how the, how the crime scene was handled and she is got some concerns about that and she mentions that you know the local police you know it was a small town and they didn't have the ability to you know really secure a scene and she says in this quote that uh, they had tunnel vision and focused on molly's boyfriend initially and uh, that of course that is a investigator's first you know tool is to look at the person closest to them as far as like a boyfriend or a husband or uh, family member or something along those lines. So she definitely has some beef to, uh, you know, with the, with authorities. And so I think this new news of the testing coming back and them saying, well, it doesn't completely rule them out. I mean, she, she's not too thrilled with that at all. And from this quote and she's going, I don't even know, what the privilege I don't even get the privilege of knowing what kind of DNA tests are being done instead they tell me they can't tell me with DNA and that it's been really hard and she says over this time I've earned a doctorate degree I just feel like there's nothing that I can do that's enough to get the information so that I can sleep at night 
that's insane and you know that's frustrating yeah. for for somebody to hear that from a family member a sister Ugh. and you, you know what's incredibly weird too is when you review her statements and you you watch her interviews you have two things or at least i do i have two things that happen to me when i watch her interviews one i'm inspired she is but two i become heartbroken because you can Mm. see she's a person that that inspires others to to be driven to be the force be that force right but at the same time, you can see what it's done to her and what it's done to her family. And, and your heart breaks for the Bish family. And this, I mean, this was a good, good batch of people in a, in a good part of our country. And I, I don't know what the deal is with the boyfriend. Maybe you could fill me in on that. Was it, was there reason, he, he was, other, reason well, to no, look at he, him other than he's the boyfriend? I think there was just, that's just kind of the first step that you do in any right. investigation. I I'm sure that Heather has more information about that and I'm sure the police do as well. I don't have it in front of me, but I, again, uh, I believe he was either ruled out or passed a polygraph. One of the two, uh, which isn't necessarily foolproof on anything, but, um, you know, it's been a long, you know, over two decades now. And if it was him, I'm pretty sure that they would have been able to connect the dots. So, uh, I just at this point at this point in time, I just hope that the law enforcement that is involved in the case figures out what their next steps are and can at least provide some idea of what those are to the family because the family is really the only thing that's left to uh, see closure and I, f- I think that you know it's only fair to to them to actually <laughs> let them know what's going on and and uh, I don't know. It's just very sad to see see something that seemed so promising not turn out. Yeah, unless you have suspicions of anybody in the family at all at this point, I don't know what or how it could hurt your case if, you know, giving some information or having certain conversations with, someone like Heather, you know, we, we all know and and understand how it could hurt a case early on in the investigation. We're talking about 22 years later Mm -hmm. and back to the boyfriend too. If this were the boyfriend, you would expect to, in that kind of situation in that kind of dynamic, you would expect to see a history of violence with this individual over the course of the last 22 years that might remind you might go, Oh, maybe we take a look at him again. Maybe, Oh, this is another reason to take a look at this guy here. It seems to me like the, some of the, the more public figures, the, the people that have been kind of publicly named as, as persons of interest, it appears most of them are, are deceased by this point. Yeah, you know, that's the one interesting thing about this case is it was 2000, but a lot of the suspects were older suspects. Um, yeah, well, so it, it sounds like the person the mom saw was, was an older individual as far as in relation to the age of her daughter, right? And this is not to say it wasn't 40 to fr- and, 45 years old. And then, yeah, and again, it's not to say that that was, I mean, if 
if it wasn't Frank Sumner, it's not to say it wasn't somebody else, you know, she saw somebody in a white car. That's a fact. And you can't take that away. Was it Frank Sumner? Well, we don't believe so at this point, but. Well, and I think there, there echoes the frustration of Heather where she's saying, I don't even know what kind of DNA this is. I don't even know what kind of tests that they are doing because you have these two statements. The DNA didn't match Sumner. He remains a person of interest. Yep. Those, all, Both of those statements can be exactly true depending on what test and what DNA they were testing. This is true. But again, just for some clarity for the family, it would be nice after 22 years, or just anything to give them some sense of, uh, you know, where this case is going. And if there is, you know, still DNA to test because we know that that's not necessarily a unlimited source either. Right. I don't know about this case, but in other cases that we've looked at, they only have certain amounts of DNA and those can be taken up by using them in tests. So let's just hope that they still have some DNA to test. Well, and again, I, I want to offer a little bit of hope. This is just one man's opinion sitting in his garage here, but from, from my review of the case, I am, I feel good that, that it is this active. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's one thing to say, Hey, I'm glad that this case after 22 years appears to be active. We have evidence that this is an active investigation, uh, by the recent news that came out. And I, I would put that, that activity level quite high on on the scale for a case that's that's 22 years old but i do hope that she comes on to your show or or does not give up hope herself and does not give up the fight herself i don't think that she will but you know she she has said uh and this is a direct quote of heather bish and this would be good reason to, to for you to speak with her. She says, one way or another, I will find out who the person is, whether it's science or a podcast, or if I have to scream from every mountaintop in this country, I will do that. I'm certain that I will find out who this person is. And so I I wish Heather Bish all of the all of the very best. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is a very good uh quote to leave that on and uh this case and in t- but in 2004 maggie and john bish did found they founded the molly bish center and foundation and this was in collaboration with anna maria college so they do you know they're, they're active again this case if you look at all the different articles all the different um news updates i mean they've never really stopped as much as there may have been some issues at the beginning i'm happy to see that they're still continuing continuing to pursue answers as i mentioned at the beginning of the show this was intentionally meant to be a one-parter but again we spoke too long and next week we will discuss the case of honey and barry sherman so make sure you guys tune in next week for the conclusion of my summer conversation with nick of true crime garage And as always, I drop new episodes of Who Killed on Fridays, as well as you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Hey, if you want to donate to the show, you can also do that via Venmo with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Or you can do 
via PayPal. It's also something that's out there. So, you know, if you like the show and you want to help support it, feel free. Uh, anything helps, and uh, very appreciative of Nick and his time. And I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation today. And again, next week, Nick will take the lead, and he will be talking about the murders of billionaire Honey and Barry Sherman from Canada. And again, thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, stay healthy and be safe. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.